let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, sometimes the most interesting buildings in a great city are the ones that didn't get built, like the Lincoln Pyramid, the Washington Pedestal, and the grand idea called Dolphin America. We are talking with architectural historian Martin Muller about unbuilt Washington, the grand ideas that sometimes luckily, mostly luckily, shaped our city by never getting off the drawing board. Oh, and after the interview, senior executive producer Priyanka Tilvey is chatting with the folks from our sponsor, Tudor Place, about how to visit the historic house and garden and why you should stick around to learn more. Today is Tuesday, January 16th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. Hey, Martin. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. So you are the author of the AIA guidebook to Washington. Right. But we're here today to talk about a quirkier interest, which is your interest in architecture in Washington that doesn't actually exist because it never got built. Can you tell us about one project that you really wish had happened? One that comes to mind is the original version of what's now the National Museum of Natural History. It was done by a local firm, Hornblower and Marshall, around the turn of the 20th century. And their initial design was very much in the French vogue of the time. If you've ever been to Paris and you've seen the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais, other great turn of the century buildings, they were just really florid and over the top. And that proposal was nixed by some of the key players in the nascent Commission of Fine Arts, but basically before it was formed, uh, they insisted on making that final design much more Roman, much more, much simpler. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I, my tastes tend toward the, the modern and the, the minimalist. But in that case, I think this spectacularly overdone dome with great decorations around the edges and just a great sense of grandeur that it would have been a great addition to the National Mall, which needed a little oomph at that point. So wait, it, it would have been in the exact same place, but instead of being, you know, what it is now, which is this neoclassical building, it would have been this like wedding cake of a place. Well, yeah, kind of. It, it just would have been a, a much more effusive, much more glorious kind of uh, addition to the mall, which generally was already shaping up to be quite sedate at that point. Okay, obviously, we are also here to talk about some wackier things that never got built. So tell me about Dolphin America. <laughs> yes. This again, was another of my favorite uh, proposals. This was a proposal, for, of, oddly enough, by an architect who was, as I joke, he probably enjoyed the 60s a great deal. And he was fascinated with dolphins. And he was convinced that we could learn a great deal from dolphins. And so he proposed this complex that would be a hotel, a conference center, a study center, including a gigantic aquarium where dolphins would be 
swimming around, and it would be sighted roughly equidistant between the Capitol and the White House, and that somehow we would magically learn from uh, all, all of these these uh, you know aquatic mammals and improve our society. Now, I love dolphins as much as the next person. I find them fascinating, but it's hard to grasp what exactly he had in mind. And it seems like the opening premise of a disaster movie. It really does, yeah. The, the pool floods the, the cities <laughs> of Washington. The dolphins are, are flopping in the streets, yeah. Like kind of a version of Sharknado, I guess. Uh, it, yeah, but it was... It was delightful, and you know, at least it's, it's it's whimsical. There have been quite a few projects that were proposed over the years that were just as whimsical, just as strange. The same uh, design team proposed the national sofa, which would have been a stone couch positioned in Lafayette Park facing the White House. And the idea is that there would be a big screen that would be projecting images of whatever was going on in the government, in the White House or something that day, to try to make the connection between the government and the people. And you could just go and be a couch potato, but in Lafayette Park and engaging with the White House across the street, which was uh, another weird but delightful idea. A couple of the other things that you've collected that I thought were really kind of jarring. One was the original design for the Lincoln Memorial, which looked kind of like a pyramid, like a, a a terraced pyramid. With regard to the Lincoln Memorial, there were actually quite a few proposals that were going around. The mall had just been extended through landfill. It used to end just slightly west of where the Washington Monument is. And so all that additional land was added from dredging in the late 19th century by the Army Corps of Engineers. It was John Russell Pope who then really thought he was going to get the commission for the the Lincoln Memorial. And he did a number of proposals for different sites, as well as these very strange proposals for the the site where it ended up. The the stepped pyramid, a a, a simple pyramid, a pyramid with a Greek temple in front, a giant round mound with a funeral pyre at the top. They all look so triumphal and the Lincoln Memorial seems to me such a, you know, humble kind of thing. Yes, but also there's obviously there's a grandeur to it at the same time. It is, you know, it seems, again, it's one of those cases where in retrospect, it seems so perfect. It's hard to imagine something other than that. And I always like to point out that people say, well, what would a, what would a pyramid have to do with Abraham Lincoln? He was born in a log cabin of my home state of Kentucky. Well, I also point out what, what does a Greek temple have to do with Abraham Lincoln? What does a, an Egyptian obelisk have to do with George Washington? So we we're now accustomed to those forms being associated with those particular leaders. It doesn't necessarily mean that that was the only possible uh, conclusion for for what you would build in those cases. But I'm certainly glad that we ended up with the Lincoln Memorial we did. This now feels very, very dignified, very grand, majestic, but also not over, not overdone, not over the top. Can you name a couple of places where we dodged a bullet of projects that you were very glad didn't happen? There were so many. A lot, <laughs> several that come to mind all relate to the proposals for the completion of the Washington Monument. As you may recall, during the mid-19th century, the Washington Monument was famously unfinished for several decades. It, it was completed up to about one-third height. You can still see at the change in the, the tone of the stone uh, where the original part was built and then the additional part was uh, finished decades later. Uh, getting into the 1870s, which was kind of a high Victorian period, so very much a period when more was more, a bunch of people decided they needed to fix this problem of this simple obelisk. And they came up with crazy proposals. In one case, it was a huge and not particularly good statue of George Washington just perched on top of the pedestal. Another proposal was modeled after, quote, one of the better pagodas. Imagine a pagoda as a monument to George Washington in the middle of Washington, D.C. He was a great pagoda lover. There were Italian 
campaniles. There, it was just a wild array of things. And uh, I think indicative of this kind of undisciplined era when there were lots of people trying different approaches, neo-Gothic, they, all of the quote-unquote exotic styles that were now being appropriated from around the world. And fortunately, the the people who were overseeing the actual construction of the monument, once they got going again, they ignored all of that. And the good news is we ended up with the, the gloriously simple and magnificent obelisk that we know today. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in D.C. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow! There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. A lot of Washingtonians, when they think about things that might have got done that didn't, they sort of think with horror about the various plans that would have put freeways over crucial parts of Washington. But one of the cool stuff about your work that you have pulled together are these renderings that showed that that some of the things that we think of as like the eternal buildings of our city, the Lincoln Memorial, the Capitol building, the White House itself, could have turned out very differently or could have been changed like after having been built to look really different. There was a proposal to vastly expand the White House in a way that makes it look kind of Versailles-like. Yes, and that's one of the things that fascinates me about unbuilt work. I think people tend to see, particularly for public projects, major institutional buildings, they tend to see them and think, well, of course, that's what it looks like. That's that's how it is. A capital is a symmetrical building with a dome and two wings. Well, until people started building capitals, that there was no nothing that said <laughs> right. that's what they had to be. And one of the proposals for expanding the White House with two additional wings and conservatories would have just turned it into this enormous, but frankly, rather awkward palace. Then there's another one, though, where I have a bit mixed feelings. It was a proposal for an entirely new executive mansion perched up on Meridian Hill. Right. So the White House in Malcolm X Park. Exactly. And it was... Uh, there's no doubt about it. It was completely over the top. The staircase leading up to the main entry was would have. I mean, you could have taken you an hour to get there. It was it was really, really astonishing. But it was also beautifully done. It was done by a talented architect, Paul Peltz, who was one of the architects of the Library of Congress main building. And so at least you look at it and say, all right, that's really beautiful. That's really grand. This would have been the sort of thing that people would have come from around the world to see if they'd been let in. So as absurd as it was, still part of me thinks, well, that kind of would have been kind of nice to have that grand building perched atop Redian Hill. So these ideas, like of putting these huge wings on the White House or relocating the whole thing to, to Meridian Hill, were they actually, you know, solicited by people with power to make them happen? Or were these just unbidden ideas that architects dreamed up? 
It's a mix. For example, the extension of the White House on the existing site, uh, that was largely the initiative of President Benjamin Harrison's wife, who was, they had a large family. She was very eager to try to expand the living quarters. And then at the same time, they were looking at ways to expand the office area, et cetera. The proposal for Meridian Hill was actually at the behest of an extraordinary woman, uh, Mrs. Maryfoot Henderson, whose husband was a former senator from Missouri. And They had enormous wealth. They had built their own mansion at the corner of 16th and what's now Florida Avenue, just outside the original L'Enfant plan, the original city limits. And she then set out to try to make her neighborhood a very fashionable one, because at that point it was kind of in the sticks, effectively becoming one of the earliest female real estate developers in the United States. And she created what we now think of as the first embassy row. But she was the one who commissioned that at Paul Peltz to design this new executive mansion on Meridian Hill. She convinced Congress successfully for a while to rename that stretch of 16th Street Avenue of the Presidents. And there was serious consideration given to some of these proposals before they eventually went by the wayside. I'm also reminded of a proposal for the National Galleries of History and Art. And this was a merchant from Boston who felt quite simply that the United States was becoming a world power and Washington should become one of the grand world capitals as a result of that. And so he commissioned architects to work with him to design a huge complex of museums and cultural facilities spanning from 17th Street Northwest, just across from the White House lawn, all the way to the Potomac River, solely because he felt that the the United States Capitol should be as grand as Paris or London or any other. And again, he had advocates in Congress. He had people who were saying, yeah, we should spend, I can't even fathom how much money this would have cost in current terms or the dollars of the day, but it would have been one of the most phenomenally expensive endeavors in American history. So what do you think is like the, the weirdest or most out there unbuilt project? That was one of them. <laughs> because oh, yeah, I imagine. It was really astonishing. The the idea of this complex is that there would have been a a building that was a neo version of ancient Egyptian architecture. There was going to be Babylonian and Romanesque and Gothic. It was all in there, this catalog of the various architectural eras for millennia. And he actually published a book called The Aggrandizement of Washington, D.C., and again, now you just in the current political climate, it's hard to imagine that non-politicos would be pushing for this sort of thing. But there was, that was actually often the case. There were many people who felt pride in the national capital and felt that it should express the highest ideals of the country. What about the Kennedy Center? I mean, you know, that was another place. A great country should have a cultural center. And, and it's been, you know, it's, it, I think, not a beloved place for a lot of Washingtonians. Yes, and I do agree with you that the original design by Edward Durrell Stone would have been much better. And it's a real shame that that didn't happen. It was much more curvilinear, very fluid, very sculptural. And also it jutted out into the river, kind of creating a a grand porch uh, that would engage the riverfront and connect the facility to the waterfront, as opposed to now where it's so isolated, thanks to the stretch of Rock Creek Parkway that goes there, but also the tangle of freeways on uh, the other side. Interestingly, the original schemes for the Kennedy Center, what became the Kennedy Center, initially the Nat- National Cultural Center, uh, were probably pretty similar in terms of the aesthetic. 
a lot of white marble, spindly, gold-toned columns, and so on, which might not have been terrific. But there, the original schemes that he toyed with, one of them had a grand circular atrium in the middle that would have helped orient you before you went to any of the various halls, as opposed to now where you, you come in these, these really long hallways and then have to go all the way to the back and filter back in, which doesn't really work very well. Uh, then he had another scheme that had an outdoor courtyard, and his idea for that was that the grand performers and pol political figures visiting, etc., would actually arrive by boat and ceremoniously come into this courtyard, like they might have done in Venice 500 years ago, and then filter into the building, which would have, again, created a, a sense of moment that is certainly not there for the building as executed. All right, I'm, I'm loving all these examples you gave us. Just to wrap things up, can you explain to people who might not be as nerdy about this stuff as me, uh, why should we care about unbuilt architecture? Does it actually have an influence, like if the building is not there and never got there? I first became interested in unbuilt work when I was in architecture school, and I came across in the library a book called Unbuilt America, published in the mid-1970s. And at first I was drawn in, much as with the exhibition that I curated about Unbuilt Washington, I was drawn in by some of the more hilariously absurd projects. But then you look more deeply and you start to realize there were really interesting ideas that were not realized, but that in many cases may have informed our understanding of it, our thinking about design, even though they weren't built. I like to use the example of the Chicago Tribune Tower competition of 1922. This was the famous newspaper that was looking for a design of a new headquarters. And they conducted an international competition that drew an incredible array of, of different kinds of, of entries from the most traditional to the most radical. And the one that ended up being selected as the winner was built by Hood and Howells. It's a perfectly elegant but very traditional building. But the runner-up, the second-place building, the design was by Eliel Saarinen, the Finnish-American architect. And even though it was the second-place entry and was not built, it kept being referred to by architects designing in the 20s and 30s as potentially a great model for how to sculpt the form of a skyscraper. And most any architectural historian would argue that it ended up having a greater influence on what was actually built than did the Chicago Tribune Tower that was completed. And so it was a reminder of the fact that projects can be influential even if they're not executed. There's been a, a long tradition in architectural academia of very prominent, very influential architects who rarely or never practice, they rarely or never build, mm -hmm. but they create you know, images, they create ideas that become quite influential. Martin Muller, thanks for being here. My pleasure. And listener, do not go anywhere. In just a second, we've got a segment sponsored by Tudor Place. Senior executive producer Priyanka Tilve is talking to the Historic House's executive director about the creative and eye-opening guided tours that they are about to start up. Hey, I'm Priyanka Tilve here with Mark Hudson. He's the executive director of Tudor Place. It's a historic house and garden in Georgetown, and it's open to visitors. And Mark, I'm so curious to learn more about this tour that you all have designed called Ancestral Spaces. What will visitors see when they experience that? Well, so each of the tours here at Tudor Place during this will focus on the experiences of the individuals who were forced to support the lifestyles of their enslavers. And so, for instance, in the dining room, where we normally have very fine dishware set out, what we will be showing there 
are shards of ceramics that have been recovered from an archaeological investigation wow. that was done here on a, in an area that was the site of an enslaved dwelling. Visitors will be entering rooms from the entrance that the service staff would have been using. So it really is turning on its head the, the standard tour that focuses more upon the the wealthy Peter family, and is looking at the historic house from the perspective of enslaved people who lived and worked here. Yeah, absolutely. I've never heard of something like this in this area, so that's really cool. I imagine that setting up a tour like this, designing something like this, takes a lot of intention and research. How have the voices of descendants been incorporated into that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. We have been working with, our curatorial team in particular, been working with an advisory committee that includes descendants of enslaved individuals. And this entire idea, this concept really came from them. So we are indebted to them for their help with this. But another way that descendant voices will be heard and experienced in this exhibit will be through oral history recordings that will be part of the presentation as well. In 1993, Tudor Place conducted oral history interviews with Hannah Nash Williams, who was the granddaughter of Hannah Pope, who was enslaved here at Tudor Place in the 18, 1830s, 1840s. And so in these recordings, Hannah Nash Williams will be sharing the reminiscences of her grandmother as she knew her, but also talking specifically about a visit that she and her grandmother made here to Tudor Place in the early 20th century. So that's really as close to a direct connection with descendants as as we can get with the resources that we have. Wow, that's amazing. How long is this tour? Although generally, our tours are generally about an hour. Sure. So at the end of that hour-long tour, it, it sounds like it's very immersive and thought-provoking. What do you hope people will take away from it at the end? Well, I, I think there's there's a lot of things that that we hope that that people will get from this. First is really just to see that whole history of Tudor Place. And one of the things that I really hope will come through with this as well is about the enduring impact of this as well. And that's one of the things that's been important in our discussions with the descendants of enslaved people here at, at Tudor Place is how that experience still affects their lives today and how the trauma that was experienced by their ancestors is experienced by them today. For sure. That's so important. When it comes specifically to ancestral spaces, how can people sign up for that? What are the dates? How do people get tickets? Yeah, so this, um, this will start February 6th and run through April 21st, and those are available Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to 3. These are offered on the hour, and then on Sundays from 12 to 3. And we strongly encourage people to register in advance for these. We believe there will be a, a great deal of interest in this. And so they can simply go to tutorplace.org, our website, and sign up for those. How can people want, who want to learn more about enslavement at Tudor Place specifically do that? We, we certainly advise people, recommend that people go to our website. It is rich with resources and information 
about enslavement at, at Tudor Place and, and in the District of Columbia. So you'll find, in addition to some essays and, and, and links to resources, we also have profiles of individuals who were enslaved here as well, and we're continuing to add information to those as well. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Again, check out tutorplace.org to learn more. We'll have that link for you in our show notes as well. Thanks for listening. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, build a giant CityCast statue, or at least design one and never build it because someday it might wind up in an exhibit. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.